Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 49. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Hope you're having an excellent Tuesday. Our guest this evening is excellent, as we always have an excellent guest, but today it's especially good. We have Tom C. Hunley here from Bowling Green, Kentucky, winner of the one of the winners of the 2020 Rattle Chapbook Prize. So you get a bit of a preview of that, as well as his two most recent books. He has a new and selected coming out soon, and he has a... Um, a, um, a book called Here Lies, which is coming out, uh, just came out pretty recently. So we'll be looking at uh, those two books, and then I think we'll be holding the Chapbook Prize stuff for, uh, for the future, so it can be a bit of a surprise to everybody when it comes out in December. Um, now, as always, we like to start out with a warm-up poem. And um, before we begin, though, I should say, please do click the like button and share. Tell your friends this is going on. Um, click the bell for notifications. If you're watching on Facebook, make sure you follow us. We're no longer streaming on Twitter and Periscope, though, because um, the, they, they changed it. You have to put sort of low stream settings. And I didn't want to turn down the, the resolution just for Twitter because I don't like Twitter anyway. So um, we're on Facebook and YouTube. And um, make sure you click the like button and share and make sure you're following us. And that way you'll see all these broadcasts and have a new poet in your living room every Tuesday night. Now, the warm-up poem for tonight, I clicked the random button, and uh, Courtney Campa came up. And um, here is, this is Baby Love, and it was a um, finalist for the uh, 2013 Rattle, Chap- or Rattle Poetry Prize. And um, the next year, 2015, Courtney Campa was actually the winner of the Rattle Poetry Prize Reader's Choice Award. But this one was a finalist, and this is Baby Love. Here it comes. Baby love. Gregory had a mole below his left eye, and sometimes kids in our fifth grade class would tease him, saying he had chocolate on his face. I was the girl who knew it was his left eye and not his right, who listened in secret to oldies 100, music like Baby Love by the Supremes, and knew every Patsy Cline song by heart. Gregory didn't backpack pocket blades to school like Richard or look up girls' skirts beneath the monkey bars the way Kenny did, whose mom let him watch all the late-night TV he wanted. He was nothing like Vinny, who'd steal the grape juice box off your desk when you weren't looking. And he didn't mock William, whose dad worked hard for a gasoline company. Gasoline has the word gas in it, which all the cool kids thought was pretty funny, really classic. Gregory had immaculate Ticonderoga erasers, and he made my knee socks droop, and he made my weak bony ankles weaker. At recess before summer, a soft piece of sidewalk tar was thrown at my feet, and I looked up, and there he was, skipping backwards, a rocket wanting me to chase him. Mrs. Rivers led him off to suggest alternative ways of procuring female attention, and in those awful green uniform pants, he looked back at me and winked, which is not something the average fifth grader does to another fifth grader. Three weeks later, his winking face was fed into the teeth of a triple car wreck. Eleven years, and I'm still mouthing the triple syllables of his name, not Not because he needs me to, but because I have no alternative way of procuring his attention. At school, I quit talking. Colin inches from my face taunting, say something, but I didn't, 
So now I will say something. I will say that I cried at our class talent show, watching Gregory's mom out in the audience, her shirt misbuttoned, camera readied, looking for him and seeing him nowhere. I will say that with Gregory gone, there was no one to stop the boys from snapping Stephen's stutter like twig across their knees. I'll say ours was a misfit purity. That after art he gave me his scissors and I swapped him mine, both blades aimed forward, looking at each other like we'd just done something dangerous. Handles inked with initials in handwriting not his, mark the way mothers mark us carefully when we walk out into the world. I'll say that I still have them. Gregory, ask me to name a thing as indestructibly beautiful as you, and I cannot. Time disfigures those who breathe and those of us who no longer can, but none of that has touched you. Not the cruelty of children, not the gravel and glass that push their way into your green restless legs, not the ugliness of an ambulance come too late, not the small grass square that mothers and quilts you, not even the skid marks below your brother's eyes, tire treads red across his chest. Love is nothing, if not what takes its time. It takes sweet time, and it took tar, but was taken by tar, and it's taken eleven years of not trusting the pitch of my voice or the shamed insufficiency of what I have to say. That at your service I got no further than taking a holy card from the altar boy, picture of an angel as dark-haired as you. An angel I'd soon shred to ribbons, my hand around those handles for the first and only time. Gregory, think of me in St. Joe's parking lot, in July in a sweaty cotton skirt. Think of my confession to that angel in his headband of light, how much I liked him too. Hoping you had stopped a moment in the beatific beating of your wings in the now familiar strumming of that strange, beseeching harp. But that was Courtney Campos' poem, and I thought it was a, a really um, interesting thing to come up on the random button, because um, tomorrow is the Rattle Poetry Prize deadline. So just to remind you, uh, July 15th, that's tomorrow, Wednesday night at midnight Pacific time, um, the Rattle Poetry Prize deadline. And um, I always tell everybody that um, just because longer narrative poems keep winning, don't send long narrative poems. Because uh, everybody thinks long poems um, are the poems that are going to win. And uh, so they send long poems. And so then long poems win. So they see long poems win and send long poems. And then the poems for, this, for the contest are just so much longer than uh, all the poems for regular submissions. And there's less variety, really. And uh, we're looking for variety. So if you haven't submitted yet, uh, you have tomorrow to do so. And, um, and send like short lyric, send sonnets, send haikus, send all sorts of weird stuff because um, that can win too. Because poems are poems, <laughs> no matter how big or small. Now, um, as I mentioned, today's guest is um, Tom C. Hunley. And uh, uh, Tom C. Hunley is, appeared in uh, Rattle number 26, 40, 55, and 68. And he was also, as I mentioned, winner of the, this year's Rattle Chapbook Prize, one of three winners. His book, Adjusting to the Lights, will come out this December for every subscriber with our winter issue. 
Um, in a 30-year publishing career, Tom C. Hunley has placed poems in journals beginning with every letter of the alphabet except for Y. The most recent of his six full-length poetry collections here lies from Stephen F. Austin State University Press, uh, forthcoming from CNR Press in March 2021 is What Feels Like Love, his new and selected poems. He's also written two textbooks and co-edited a third. He's professor in the MFA BA Creative Writing Programs at Western Kentucky University, where he has worked since 2003. And um, here he is, Tom C. Hunley, trying to turn his office lights back on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hate the automatic light. Yeah, that was funny. It, it took the exact amount of time for them to turn off as uh, as the intro to this it happens show. All the time, it happens all the time. <laughs> I'm just sitting still in front of my my computer, and uh, I'll, I'll be conferencing with a student, and it goes off. Yeah, someone has a great poem about that. I can't remember who though, but we published a poem about the office lights and about ah. everybody flapping. You know, all the students flapping like birds every time they come off or something. Um, anyway, so so Tom, how's it going today? Um, and uh, you're there in your office with a great book background. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, having a good day. I'm still uh, uh, trying to process uh, winning the rattle contest, uh, the chapbook contest. It's really the best literary news I've ever gotten in 30 plus years of publishing. <laughs> and uh, I was really, my, my biggest goal was to get a journal with the letter Y to publish me in. Instead of that, I got $5,000 coming are, in wide distribution. Are, are there any uh, journals that start with Y? Yeah. I was trying to think of one when, when I, I read that. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm waiting to hear back from Yemassi right now. <laughs> fingers crossed. Uh, well, there's Yalabusha Review I, and Yale Review. There's one called Yes, Yes, I think. Oh, that's uh, right. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. I've had no luck, but uh, it'll happen. I also have one poem published uh, by a journal that begins with a number, you know, 5 a.m. Mm-hmm. So I got 25 of the 26 letters plus a number, so well, well, numbers are infinite, so you just have to cover every number now too. That's how you can, that's how you can keep moving forward. <laughs> well, do you want to uh, start us out with a poem? Um, yes. Whatever what you wanted to read first, but whatever you want. All right. Uh, so here lies was published in 2018. It's a kind of a project book. The oversimplified way to talk about it is uh, I, I die a different way in each poem. That's not quite true. But uh, it's uh, self-epitaphs. In fact, the first poem of the book was initially published in Rattle. Uh, the first 23 poems or so begin with uh, a Roman numeral. And uh, the implied first line is, Here Lies Tom C. Hunley, which is the title of the section. Uh, so here's one where I don't actually die, but you'll see how it, uh, there's stuff about death. Here lies Tom C. Hunley on his hammock, swinging between two oaks, between the danger of a stinger and shocks of silence, between his shadow sprawled out on his long neglected lawn and the twilight sky bruised like the eye of a boxer knocked down and fighting his way back up, who upon rising sees his body still sprawled on the canvas, looking so serene he forgives himself finally for not being a champion, for letting his father flatten his mother over and over until he found the combination that unlocked his fury and cold-cocked his father, and who, gazing somehow into his own dazed eyes, sees that there's more to a person than he could ever fit in his fists, more than he could hold clenched in his muscled, oiled arms, more beauty than you can bottle in something as soft and lightweight as a body. Very nice. Yeah, great poem. I just love this book, Tom. Um, what makes you wonder how do you how did you write it? Because um, 
I, you know, I, I'm, I remember reading this, um, this poem when you submitted it. And you, I think you submitted it with like four other poems from the series. And we picked, you know, we loved them all, but we picked the one we liked best. But um, it, it's kind of amazing that you can sort of keep the balls juggling for, for this um, format for so long. Um, and, and, it, and it's really, there's a, such a progression to the book too. Um, how did you go about writing it? And like, why? Um, um. You know, the first poem I wrote, I was just doing the dishes and I cut myself and I guess I thought, what if I'd killed myself accidentally there? What if I cut myself somewhere slightly different? And I think, I mean, I just wrote this poem, Here Lies Tom C. Hunley, who, you know, cut himself washing the dishes and died and uh, so on. And then I just, uh, the next day I tried Here Lies Tom C. Hunley, who, and it just seemed like anything could happen any given day that, that could potentially lead to a death. Um so part of what was going on, I mean, this is my second uh, project book, I guess, you know, where every all the poems, there's they got something in common, uh, something, you know, formal or subject wise in common. Um, part of what was going on was, you know, I used to run a small press called Steel Toe Books, sold it a year and a half ago. Um, and I just found it was easier to pitch to sell books if I could ha- uh, if I could summarize what they were about. And it's very hard to summarize what a poetry book about, is about. A lot of times I have to say, well, these are book, some great poems the guy wrote over a six-year period. They're his best poems from that period. Mm-hmm. It's hard to sum- sell that unless they already know the poet. But if I, when I said uh, Martha Solano's book was about postpartum depression or Janine Hall Gailey's book was about empowerment of female comic book superheroes and, and women from literature, something like that. Uh, Richard Carr's book was, uh, uh, it was like uh, something like 99 poems, that, but they were paired. One poem was God says this or does this, and then I say this or do that, and it was about just a man wrestling with his God. Anyway, so I just found sitting at book fairs, it was easier for me to sell copies of books like that. So, uh, so first I wrote this a book, you know, about The Simpsons, not about The Simpsons, but I mean I used the the television show The Simpsons. Uh, each poem was in the voice of a different character. I, I realized that I had a lot. I watched a lot of the show. And I had something in common with all these different characters. And so I just tried to look for what my issue was that I had in common with a character. Then I wrote that whole book. And then after I was done with that project, I, I realized I was done when I was I, I was sick of the show. I couldn't even watch it. It felt like work. I was like, okay, we've got to move on. There's a couple hundred characters in the show. I only got through 40 plus characters, but I had to move on. And so then I just, I didn't do anything for a while writing. I, I, I find it's really nice to stop writing in between projects and do other things and then the poems the next bunch of poems is different mm-hmm. so anyway this then this came to me i just cut myself washing <laughs> the dishes and thought what if i died and then i just ran with that for a couple of years until it got too morbid and you know it was too much thinking about my death mm-hmm. that it was time to do something else <laughs> yeah what what has been the response because because you're you know a lot of poets either do project books or they don't and um, and you've done both. What's your experience for how uh, readers respond to them? Because it's one thing I always sort of worry about with the Rattle Chapbook Prize, like we already mentioned. I think every book that we've published has some kind of theme, and I don't know. I, I worry that um, it's the, you know reading so many submissions when you can get lost in like a book. If you if you read like like a thousand manuscripts, which is what we do, and then you get lost in a book that really stands out, and um, you know, in, in other poem, you know, other books that that don't have a strong theme, um, I'll read them, and it'll be like a couple great poems, but they don't like stick out like that. And then you reread them, and and they're not like reinforced. And I wonder about 
about if, if those kind of books just work better because of the process of the way we go about publishing, or do readers also feel that way too? Do, do you have an opinion about that? Uh, well, I mean, novels are awfully popular, <laughs> you know, and they have a through line, mm-hmm. you know, like a, and I think for a chapbook length, it makes sense to have a through line, something that holds all the poems together. When I was reading manuscripts for Steel Toe books, a lot of the poems, books I liked, maybe they had three sections. One of the sections was a sequence or a long poem, and the others were just more like the person's best poems. That seems to be a kind of formula that works pretty well, too. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I did, I did notice that I was, it was easy to publish poems in individual journals when they were not part of a sequence, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's the weird dichotomy, because it's hard to, like, we had, who was it that wrote the book about um, Kanye West's mother? Do you yeah, know yeah. that book? Who was that? Sarah, Sarah Blake. Sarah Blake, that's right. She kept sending these poems, and she would send, like, six of them, and they were so good together. And at the time, we yeah. really were resistant to publish more than one poem. That was just sort of our old yeah. policy. And I kept saying, like, well, these don't really work alone. But And that's actually one of the impetuses for wanting to do a chapbook um, you know, contest and publish chapbooks, too, is because when poems hang together, they're really powerful and interesting. Um, and, and they sort of need to be together. Um, so, so anyway, um, let me say before we read another poem, um, if anybody has any questions for Tom, I'm watching the, the chat windows on both YouTube and Facebook. So if anybody has any questions for Tom, um, just ask them in the chat and I will pass them along. Um, but let's hear another poem or two, Tom. Yeah. Okay. So uh, this one in the book is just called Roman number 22. But again, it's the 22nd and last poem in the section called Here Lies Tom C. Hunley. So I'll just say Here Lies Tom C. Hunley as if it's the first line. Here Lies Tom C. Hunley, a secret repeated three times with minor variations, by which I mean death cured him of a disease called life, which he had passed on to three sons whose favorite music at one time was loose change plucked from his pockets. Tom slept and woke in another world, but his living dreams stayed in this world of mom loved you more and dad left you best. Love <laughs> Of mom loved you more and dad left you most. He is survived by all the words he never had a chance to say, all the words he'll never hear his son say in an effort to drive everything wrong about Tom out of themselves. The secrets Tom C. Hunley's body couldn't keep, keep repeating themselves in bodies of their own that survived him, by which I mean, please don't put out the small flames that burn in the fatherless night. Very nice. And that was the last poem for the opening sequence of Here Lies. Why don't you go on to the next one that you had had planned? Great. So then the second section of Here Lies is called The Grand Pause. Uh, uh, it's actually a musical term. I, I found it in a book by, uh, I'm going to mispronounce it, John Bigunet. He's a poet and also a short story writer. And uh, Bloomsbury has this series uh, of little books about either objects or concepts. So he wrote a whole book about silence. And here's a quote from that. The grand pause indicated by a fermata above a rest extends the silence at the performance performer's discretion one composer has even employed the grand pause on his tombstone so since i was writing about death that just seemed great uh, as a section title and basically i thought if every single poem in the book started or was implied to start here lies tom c henley that just wasn't enough variety so the second section the poems have titles they're still about death this one's called surrounded by aliens who isn't a baby in a blanket thrown out the window of a burning house? Who isn't a bamboo kite about to be torn to pieces by a living feathered kite? 
who isn't a windstorm embarrassed to ask for directions, but also afraid to subside. Tom C. Hunley lies in a hospital bed surrounded by aliens. His family and friends, but from a different world from the one where he lies, snapped like branches and then burned like branches and then overwhelmed like a small flame by the soothing music of rain. He's not gone or quite still here, but in between, like all of us always in between. Who isn't a house with many rooms, all of them hallways? Who isn't surrounded by aliens, wondering why war looks like love, why love looks like war? Hello, hello, says the nurse, like a question spat into a telephone while she touches him and he hears but can't tell her. Her touch makes him feel too much like food that cries each time it's bitten in a voice like a dog whistle. And so ouch, so much ouch. But the nurse's beauty stings a sunset scene from a prison cell. Very nice. That was surrounded by aliens from here lies. Right. Um, yes. Yeah, a different poem I was reading. Um, there, it ends on, um, it's a poem about, I remember which one it was, but it was about, um, one of the most embarrassing things in your life, probably the throwing up in front of your school class. Remember? Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it ends about how amused you were by it, and then, um, uh-huh. and then it says the world a toy he finally learned to enjoy. You know, and and I just feel like um, every time I read your poems, there's so much enjoyment in them. Um, do you have like a like a philosophy for writing that that includes that? Like, what do you think of what you, what is your job as a poet, and and is that how does that all tie together? Um, I don't know. I, I did study. I made a point out of studying with David Kirby at Florida State because he was uh, funny and serious. You know, his I remember him saying that he wanted not poems that were more funny, but poems that were more full. So if a poem was really sad, he wanted to have some checkpoints that were, that were also funny. And if he had a funny poem, he also wanted some checkpoints where it turned dark. So I'm really influenced by that idea. I mean, I kind of had an inkling of that idea before I studied with him. I sought him out after reading several books. I, had, I said, this is the guy I got to learn from. Um, he t- actually taught a tutorial on poetry and humor. And I remember him saying how annoying he thought it was that um, if your poems have humor in them, a lot of times people don't take them seriously, you know, and that poem, humorous poets don't win the big prizes. He said uh, there's this attitude that, like, if you say uh, uh, the war in such and such a place is bad, that that's profound, you know, well, it's not profound. We already know that, you know, um, any, but anyway, humor for me is, I've been, you know, sometimes a defense mechanism and not always healthy, you know, sometimes I can be flipping whatnot. I need to check that in my poems, but, uh, but humor is an important part of how I face life. And I just, it's, I mean, uh, some of my newer poems are dark a lot, you know, I mean, I wrote a whole book about my death, you know, it's going to be dark, but hopefully it's dark humor. It's darkness checked by humor, humor checked by darkness. And it's just uh, it's just how I really face life and, and am in everyday life. Yeah, yeah. It's a, a playfulness about mortality, I guess. This is how I probably describe the book. Um, and it, it's really, it's weird. It's strange. They're all um, um, like epigrams and then, or, or is that the right word? Or epitaphs, I mean. Right. Yeah, right. yeah, and um, but they're all like fun epitaphs in a in a weird way too. So um, it's an interesting juxtaposition. Yeah. There was an excellent review, but in the Englewood Review of Books by a guy named Arik Danielson. I really thought he got me. He just said he just spoke, talked about how I say that had a gallows humor is an understatement, and how there's this huge body count in the book, but all the bodies are mine. And uh, I, I I loved reading that review. And there's a nice one in Valparaiso Poetry Review also where I thought the reviewer. Uh, 
got things that I didn't that I didn't necessarily think about. So yeah, yeah, that's always cool when that happens. Um, uh, Dick Westheimer asks. Um, he says, if you could talk about how the rhythm of your name drives your poems with your name <laughs> in them, which is interesting. Yeah. I mean, if you had a different name, they, especially because you wrote them all starting out with your name in there in the first line, they sort That's of. That's true. The rhythm's there. Yeah. The, the rhythm. Yeah. Did that come into play? I don't know. Uh, it must have. I do a scansion exercise with my students where we, when we're just starting to learn how to do scansion, I ask them their middle names and if they can scan their names. And we talk about whose parents had a, a rhythmic ear, a metrical ear, and whose didn't, you know. Yeah. Some people's names are free verse. But my full name is Thomas Christian Hunley. It's triple trochee, you know, trochaic trimeter, if you're going to make a line out of it. Um, but, yeah, to his question about the rhythm of my name, I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, these are free verse poems, uh, except there's some sonnets in the book. Um <laughs> that's a good question i'm stumped a little bit by it <laughs> yeah it's interesting you mentioned that because we um for our daughter consciously made my, my uh, megan always wanted to have um a daughter named josephine and, uh, and then josephine green is just terrible <laughs> yeah so we call, named her, the middle name works. yeah yeah so you named her josephina ronan green which is uh oh, yeah. i don't know the i don't know the words for the feet but it is definitely the yes. josephine you know ronan green yeah, uh, so I think that's three trochees, and then you've got another extra uh, stressed syllable there at the end. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I hear it. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, do you want to finish up with the last poem you had from this book that you wanted to do? Absolutely. Uh, let me find that there. I got it. Okay, so this is uh, – uh, there's a lot of music in, in my poems, I guess, and this, uh, this one's called Tom's Death with a David Bowie soundtrack. Somewhere out there, like the truth – Floats Major Tom C. Hunley, helmet on, engines on, thrilled to star in a David Bowie song, but why couldn't it be Ziggy Stardust or China Girl or even Let's Dance? He could have been clubbed by a wannabe hero or he could have been hunky-dory instead of sitting in this tin can. Each of his molecules misses his wife. They miss soil and wish for a proper burial. They miss stones that sit still as if posing for photos. Unlike these asteroids that knock on his spacecraft and then ricochet away like disappointed trick-or-treaters, Major Tom C. Hunley rose and vanished like vapor on a lake or like birdsong in a sky so dark. Even death says a little prayer and a curse word or two while fumbling for a light switch that isn't there. So that was Tom's death with a David Bowie soundtrack from Here Lies. And that kind of brings up another thing I wanted to ask you about. Um, you're in a, I guess, a punk rock band. Uh, um, yes. How, how does that, how does music and poetry intertwine for you? Because, uh, you know, you do a lot of music. You play guitar and, and do, you, do you sing too? Are you the lead singer? I am the lead singer. Uh, vocalist, let's call vocalist, it. Vocalist, yeah. Um, right. Uh, I don't know. Writing poetry comes a lot easier to me because I've done it for a lot longer. Um. Uh, I, I got to teach a class on poetry and songwriting a few years ago. That was fun. I had some uh, songwriters uh, come in and, and let guest lecture the class. Um, but anyway, it's, it's a late interest. I actually started playing bass guitar at age 40 and guitar at age 43, 44. Um, so uh, it's part of why I play punk. It's, it's simpler and easier. <laughs> uh, my bandmates nowadays are my kids. It's the tightest band I've ever had. They're 15 and 13 now. They were just under 14 and 12 when we recorded our album, Let's Get the Cops Called by Dr. Tom and the Minimes. <laughs> what happened is, I mean, the kids were taking lessons, but for years before that, I was playing with adults 
And it was just so frustrating. You, you had to, it was so hard to get three, three or four people together once a week or every regular time. Everybody had these schedules. And then everybody had different ideas about which direction we should go. And it was easier, finally became easier for me to just turn on the PA in the basement whenever I wanted to have practice and say into the microphone, come down and let's have practice. And we're doing my song. <laughs> At some point, they're going to rebel now and they're going to kick me out. <laughs> I, I fear that, but it'll probably be time when it happens. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's just really fun, and I'm really happy that my kids are are able to start playing music at, at, when they're young, you know, which I, I didn't, I missed out on. Yeah, yeah. What made you uh, pick it up later in life? Like usually, you hear people who are teenagers and they started a garage band or something. How come? Huh? Mid, yeah, I, you know what, midlife crisis, I guess. But also, I mean, I tried a couple times in my late teens, early twenties, and gave up. I was really busy learning how to write poems, and I was working my way through college. I was in Seattle during the grunge years. I graduated in '93, so seems like everybody around me was in a band. And maybe it's just that there was a, it, I didn't see a need for more bands. I saw a need for more poets in that area, I guess. I don't know. But my energies went into poetry. Even I was trying to, when I was working on my MFA, I was trying to practice guitar and I wasn't good. And I said, well, I can, you know, I can be mediocre at guitar. Or I could get good at poetry here. Let's, <laughs> let's be focused. I actually sold my guitar and a synthesizer. I had an amp to, to get my, my wife's engagement oh, ring. Wow. <laughs> Uh, and then, you know, but then, you know, 15 years later, I said, okay, I don't want to go my whole life not being a musician. I remembered a good musician telling me that bass was easier to get started on. So, uh, so I picked up a bass and played it every day for three and a half years and then switched to guitar, basically. Oh, wow. Uh, and I'm really happy I did. I'm never going to be really, really good, but uh, it's super fun. I don't play because I think I'm good. I play because I, I, I think it's super fun. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Well, that's inspiring, too, because I, um, I, I'm terrible at guitar, but I would like to uh, be better. And, um, yeah, yeah, that's very inspiring. Um, let me see. Um, uh, Brian Larissa Thames Haynes. Oh, yeah. Um, she asks, um, she says I'm... She's my student, and uh, she was on your uh, Rattle Critique of the she Week. She was, whatever it's called. yes, what? yes, she was. was. Yeah. And um, actually, somebody posted a link. John Myers posted a link, too, to um, Let's oh, Get wow. the Cops Called from Amazon. Oh, my goodness. So, those are, so if those you're are on... two of my great MFA students <laughs> well, there you right go. there. But anyway... Um, uh, Brian Larissa Thames Haynes says, um, always surprised by your poems line by line and always feel like I've been invited to play the most wonderfully exuberant game of tag of ideas. Tag of ideas is a really interesting way to think about line. And I was, I was noticing that too, that your lines throughout the book and, and the, they always have a turn. Like everything is like undercuts, everything shifts with every line break. Is there a way that you go about doing that? Is it a conscious thing that you do or is it just the process a, of writing? Yes. It's definitely conscious. Uh, I don't know if you know a guy named uh, Michael Tooney, T-E-H-E-U-N-E. -E, brilliant guy. I uh, teach at Illinois Wesleyan. Um, he had a book called Structure and Surprise. His whole thesis is that every – and then he had a – he and Kim Adonisio had a blog. But the thesis of both of these things was that every good poem or most poems are like sonnets in that they have a volta somewhere. And he has all these categories of turns. So I got really interested in that reading him around 2008. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, and then others, you know, Billy Collins said he, uh, some I, something like a poem starts at A and it should end in Z. You know, he, does, he doesn't like a poem that that's like a five paragraph essay. And I agree, you know, it says, here's what I'm going to say. Now I'm saying it. Here's what I just said. I really like a poem that surprises me where it goes. Um, so uh, I guess there's some poets that I see doing that really well. Bob Hickok, who you interviewed for this Cast. I mean, he's amazing. You know, I just think there's a he kind of seems to uh, 
just follow the words, you know, uh, not so much try to push him around, you know, let them surprise him. And I try to do this too. Yeah. You know? It feels like the poems I, like keep reinventing themselves as they go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah multiple turns. Mm-hmm. In fact, in, in some of the poems that I like best, just uh, call it, call it movement, you know, um, uh, yeah, I think if you just listen to the language and kind of go slow and you go, oh, my gosh, that line could lead to some other place that I didn't even know about. And that's what's so fun. You know, I mean, why why sit down and say something you already knew you're going to say? That's like a letter to the editor, you know, mm-hmm. which probably gets more more reads than a poem <laughs> usually. But uh, I'd rather I'd rather not know what, where what I was saying and and then just be surprised at the end and not know where it came from, really, other than just following the the trail of words wherever they go yeah yeah more reads but less uh, less remembered i guess is what I, <laughs> sure yeah. you know uh yeah I, so there's a poem by gabriel gooding do you know his work i don't uh, actually prose poem it's on the rectum of peacocks kind of a weird title uh but at one point in the poem he says um he says something like uh, peacocks have one rectum that they share in common they pass it in common like a but uh like a baton between them he says some people think talent is like that but it's not. There's an overabundance of talent in any group. Uh, and he says something like, talent is not like the butt baton of peacocks. <laughs> there's a shortage of pe- uh, anuses for peacocks, but there's an overabundance of talent everywhere. What a, and so the, the thing he's actually saying is very simple. And he actually, I found a, an article in a school newspaper, an interview where he said, prosaically, he said, yeah, I'm always surprised by how much talent there is in my classrooms. It's, there's talent everywhere. That's the prosaic way to say it, right? But the the poetic way, the stylish and memorable way is talent is not like the butt baton of peacocks. I'll never forget that line, you know, and I butchered the whole stanza just now. Um, anyway, I just think uh, I, with my students, a lot of times they, the beginners, they want to say something really profound and philosophical. And it's boring and it's not as ended up not being so profound. But I think if you just uh, say it's, it's okay to say something ordinary that other people have said before, but I want to say it in a different way that maybe people will remember. Uh, well, anyway, I'd rather be that guy, you know, that, that says the, the pretty, pretty uh, simple thing in a, in a really strange way mm-hmm. than somebody that tries to say the really uh, strange, surprise, uh, new thing in an ordinary way. You've mentioned a few times, like, really, you know, analyzing sort of like you've studied the way to write and, and talking about structure and things like that. Um, is that how you encounter a poem? Do you like sort of plan it out at all? Or um, like, how does, how does uh, that work? Cause I would think that you more, you know, you're trying to surprise yourself and seeing how you can amuse yeah. yourself reading it. That's what I think it is. But, but you right. do talk so much about, um, about, about studying and structure and stuff. It makes me wonder how much, how much is like conscious right. and how much is like just unconscious. So, just real quick. I mean, a plug, you know, uh, 110 poetry exercises, the poetry gymnasium, the second, uh, edition just came out and uh mostly uh those are exercises they're ways i've actually gone about writing poems you know there are model poems in there by published authors and sometimes if i couldn't get permission to use one it's just by me uh and then there's poems by my students but generally i, I created the exercises inductively i think is the word where i i looked at somebody else's poem and i tried to figure out how it was put together and then i made an exercise saying try this and so there's some of those that I actually uh, continue to do on my own. I mean, in my new poem folder, word folder at home, I have a folder called new poems. And at the beginning, I'll say, try this. And it'll be a variation on an exercise, maybe a new spin on one. Uh, and I, I'll keep some notes, you know, in addition to the, to the draft. It's just like what I, what I was doing. So, yeah, I'm always trying to do something with language. Um, 
And then, you know, you know, the the exercises are like loose outlines. I mean, you know, maybe the poem takes off and goes somewhere I didn't didn't expect it to, and that's that's good. That's that's what I want. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, do you want to go move on to? Um, yeah, I think you had two um, poems from the Simpsons chapbook we or book. We already mentioned yeah. that, and they're from your new and selected. But um, do you sure. want to do those two? And I forgot to grab. Yep. Um, a copy of the newest rattle. So I'll, I'll go grab that while you're, while you're talking about the Simpsons, sure. but, um, sure. But yeah, you want to read the Mo and the auto. Yeah. So Mo Sislak is the bartender in the Simpsons. And again, like I said, uh, while I was working on this, I thought, what are my issues that I have in common with this character? So I can have this speaker, uh, discuss things that I actually wrestle with. Mo Sislak is a character that has really different sides to his personality, very self contradictory, um, and I feel like I can be that way too. So I actually, he's a bartender. I actually put myself in the bar. So you'll see when the Tom Hunley character walks in, <clears throat> most is like, oh, there was this, the setup. There's an episode where Marge was the listen lady. She was, uh, people could call her for advice. And so I have Mo Caller. Hello, listen lady. Uh, yeah, this is Mo of Mo's Tavern. See, I tell you my name up front because I don't want you to confuse me with one of them prank callers. We got one of those at the bar. A scum-sucking pusball who makes me say stuff like, is there a Drew P. Wiener in the house? I get so mad, I want to take a bottle opener to his veins and then dunk him in the shark tank at the Springfield Aquarium. Listen, lady, I want you to teach me to give advice like a bartender ought to be doing. Sure, I can offer a trusty duff, a flaming moe, or the best watered-down scotch around, but if the chaser is me mocking the poor barhound's necktie, I'm not doing my job. I'm always fighting with myself. That's my problem. I'm part Dutch, part Italian, part Arab, part Polish. And it feels like all these parts are at war inside my bloodstream. Somehow you just got to surrender to your own complexities. Like that poet who said, I am large. I contain multitudes. I wish I thought to say that to this egghead from Springfield Heights Institute of Technology who comes in one night back when Moe's was a pomo joint called M. He tells me he's teaching classes in women's literature where he and his charges spit out the word patriarchy as if dislodging a chicken bone. And he's careful not to point out that he's the family breadwinner. He does most of the driving and he spanks the kids if he gets a call from their principal. So he's a feminist professor and he's a patriarch. He can't get along with himself, so he drinks. Why do people turn to barkeeps for advice anyway? Is this the mug of a guy who knows what's what? I mean, I moved to this here burg because the zip code spells boobs if you type it on a calculator. My bar is such a girl repellent that I never even needed to put in a ladies' room. Still, they tell me their girl troubles. Me and my last girlfriend left me, and she was a blow-up doll, stupid helium. I don't want you to think I'm a bad guy or nothing, though. Sure, I stalk my friends' wives, and I guess running that whale-smuggling ring wasn't my finest hour, but I love my cat Snookums. That's got to count for something, right? Once I saved music store owner King Toot from a burning Chevy, and on my nights off, I've been reading Little Women to them sweet little hospital urchins. I've got a soft spot for kids when they ain't crank yanking, asking if there's a hue jazz on any of my bar stools. Do you ever fight with yourself, listen, lady? I mean, maybe you're a snake handler like me, but some days you just don't believe in nothing. Take it from me, an ex-boxer. When you fight with yourself, you're going to lose. Bet on it. Yeah, thanks, Todd. That was most his lag from... Uh from his uh, new and selected poems and, and the, um, what, what's the title of the Simpsons poems book? It's called, uh, uh, the state that Springfield is in. Ah, okay. 
Yeah. Yeah. What, what is the state that Springfield is? Do you have an opinion or is it just impossible to know? <laughs> no, I mean, my title is more of a wordplay, you know, the state that it's in, but, uh, that's an you know, ongoing gag on the show, mm-hmm. and there are a bunch of Springfield, so no. <laughs> Although Matt Groening, you know, spent a lot of time in the Northwest, so probably, I mean, if I had to pick one, Oregon. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just remember, I remember the first time we, I read that poem, just as a regular submission, and just laughing out loud reading that. It's so in Mo's voice. It's really. Um, and then I remember asking because um, Alan, you know, doesn't watch The Simpsons, and um, and so I said, "Is this still entertaining, even if you have no idea who Mo Sislek is?" And he he said, "Yeah," and he laughed too. So then we published. That was it. that was a concern of mine. Yeah. I, I really wanted people to get the book without, uh, you know, knowing the show. And there's a bunch of endnotes if people want to know more about what's going on in the episodes that I'm referencing. Um, and but I had you know I felt like at book fairs people were buying two copies. You know, one of them was for me because I love poetry, and the other is for my friend who loves that show. And that's exactly what I wanted. I don't want to just keep writing for that pocket audience of people that the people that usually buy poetry are they're this tiny cult, you know, of people that are passionate about poetry. Um, I would like to find reach other people too, and I hope and that was one of my goals with that book. Yeah, do do you think it worked? Have you got? Did you hear back from people who were just Simpsons fans who happened to get it and then started liking? Poetry? Some yes, but uh, uh, you know, um, I, I was hoping to make more inroads in, into uh, you know the people that you see on Simpsons chat rooms and things like that, uh, selling more copies. Uh, but uh, actually, that press uh, stopped. It's already gone out of uh, print after. Less than four years, so that's disappointing. This, the press uh, has new uh, ownership, and they're 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 doing prose and mm-hmm. things like that instead of poetry now. Um, so a little disappointed uh, that I didn't make more inroads into um, uh, just the the Simpson sphere, I guess. But you know, the, but there were some, you know, here and there. Yeah. Well, let's hear the other one while we're so we're stay on on uh, on point, and then I have some a good question from Bun Kung Tone. All right, uh, great. One of my Facebook friends. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is Auto Man, Intrepid Bus Driver. Um, there, uh, I've just been reading um, Ken Kesey. Uh, what was his book uh, that was on the bus? Well, anyway, there's some references. It's Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. There's some references to that in here. <clears throat> One time when I was blotto, my converses started talking to me. If I could explain what they said, if I could find words to match the road's wordless language... You would learn more than your teachers could put on a year's worth of chalkboards. I'll get you to Springfield Elementary, but we're taking the scenic route, scenesters. Look to your left at the forest fire. The whole world's burning. That's your first lesson. You can get a tattoo on this town on your 14th birthday, and you should. That's lesson number two. Get out your air guitars to see how many kinds of silence you can pluck out of the air. Somebody give us a beat. You, Dolph. Make a scratching sound like a broom sweeping a house. And you, Kearney, try to sound like a wind blowing in a place where there are no houses around, while Jimbo makes a scraping sound like someone raking leaves. I'm going to teach you all a new word, intersubjectivity. I learned that at Brown University, where I almost made tenure. It means the silence of those trees connects to the silence of your air guitars. It means my thoughts and yours can meet midair without us having to speak if we let it happen. I remember school, recess, spent alone looking at the parking lot, wet and shining, the yellow sounds of the buses calling me, telling me the clouds overhead were a blueprint for a heaven still under construction. 
I wanted to translate those sounds. Sometimes I think this bust will lift off, lift off and take us to that half-finished heaven. I feel myself drift away from this world. I fall into a sleep as deep as the sleep of the dormant notes inside my Les Paul, and I wake just before the bus goes off a cliff, seeing dawn's reddening light and the tall grass gone greener than any green light. And I realize that each of us is just a little breath, that this yellow school bus is a canary sent deep into the mines, that you are the precious shiny metal in those mines, that you are the sunlight sparkling on the Springfield River as the road bends and the bus hugs the road and the world awaits the honking of our horn, the screeching of our brakes. Yeah, those are just so fun. I haven't read the whole book, but I really want to, um, especially after reading. I'll send you one for sure. I got a ton of them. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, thanks. I'd love it. Yeah. Um, so, so Bung Kung Tuon um, has two questions. He says, first of all, speaking of lines and surprises, how do you know when a poem ends? And how do you know when a surprise is the ultimate final surprise? And then there's another question too, but let's, let's start with that. Okay. Yeah. Good question. Uh, for me, I mean, one of the, and probably cause I spend a lot of time with students and trying to help them with their poems. One thing I notice a lot is this tendency that I, maybe we all have is to start the poem before the beginning and end the poem after the end. The most common types of revision I suggest are cut those first few lines, cut those last few lines. Yeah, that's pretty so much. I do it my, yeah, that's pretty much the only edit we do in rattle. It's someone say, okay. you know, there'll be a great chunk in the middle, and then they either explained it or they introduced it in a way that was yeah, just totally unnecessary. I, exactly. Yeah. They, yeah, and I find myself doing that too. You, I look for uh, the resonant image. I have an exercise in the poetry gymnasium called "Leaving on a High Note," and it's based on an episode of Seinfeld. So George tells a joke at a meeting. Uh, and then uh, every last, and then he tells another one, and everybody's like, come on, George, we're trying to work here. So he tells Jerry about this, and Jerry says, showmanship, George. Uh, Jerry's a comedian, of course, and so he says uh, when he's doing a comic uh, stand-up show, when he hears all the laughter, even if he has some other jokes planned, he stops. So the same kind of idea in the poem, when you hit the resonant image, forget about laughter, but the thing that you think people are going to react to, cut everything after that or just don't write it in the first place. So that's that's the ending. And, and again, for me, a lot of times I'll write it. I'll write the extra stuff, but then I'll just go back and look for the resonant image that just feels like an ending. And I think I've uh, uh, I've learned to spot that mostly by looking for it in other people's poems, students' poems and so mm -hmm. on. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good advice. And then the other question you had is, do you have a set idea of what you want to write about when you start writing a poem or do you just let the poem wander and find its own subject? OK, so. Uh, it depends on whether I'm working on a project book or not. You know, the most recent book, most of the poems are about adopting a teenager uh, from state foster care and about having a, that's a teenage daughter, and then having a, a son on the autism spectrum. Uh, so a lot of times uh, the poems would come straight from scenes, or from things that happened in the house, things that the kids did that I thought um, a lot of people aren't aware of uh, characters like this, people like this in the world, you know, so they would, one of the kids would say or do something. I'd go, okay, geez, I got to find a way to capture that, uh, to make, uh, this person alive to people who don't know him as, or her as well as I do. Uh, and then, you know, here lies was all about my death and the Simpsons poem were all about the Simpsons. So generally it's not like I knew something I was going to say usually, but it's like, okay, I knew when I started, which character I was writing in when I did the Simpsons or, or I knew what kind of death I was going to write about when I did Here Lies. But still, I did, that was just a way to get started. Uh, the Simpsons poems are not about The Simpsons. It's The Simpsons as a vehicle to get at my own issues. And the Here Lies, it's not about my death. It's about that trope of different deaths to get at uh, 
all kinds of, you know, wherever I can go, whatever uh, kind of lines I can find. Um, anyway, if I'm not doing a project book, I have no idea what I'm going to write about, uh, but I, I have a, an idea of uh, some way I'm going to play with language, usually stuff out of my own textbook, the poetry gymnasium, or sometimes, you know, other people's prompts, you know. Um, however, at any given point, it's not accurate to say I don't have any idea what it's going to be about because I have an obsession, you know. So I, I, I generally know my unconscious, what my unconscious is trying to work through. Uh, like when I had small kids, it wasn't a project but, book, but poem after poem ended up, up about being about new fatherhood. I wasn't trying to make that happen, but at a certain point I just realized it was going to because that's what was on my mind. Yeah, yeah, that's a good segue to maybe some other poems you want to read? Uh, whatever you want to go next. Yeah, uh, yeah, okay, speaking of new fatherhood, here's a poem from Confessions. It's called Confessions of a Failed Beatnik. It's page 51 in the, uh, the New and Selected. Um, what this poem was really about, what it ended up being about was, uh, you know, when I was a young man just starting to write poetry, I loved the beats and I loved all the new American poetries, the New York, New York poets and the Black Mountain poets. And I had this idea of what their lives were like. And I was uh, living in cities and kind of tr- growing a beard and uh, going to a lot of readings. Uh, and uh, and I just couldn't picture a life where you were a poet, but you're a dad. You know, I have four kids and I have a, I just couldn't pick. I couldn't at that time square, you know, the suburban lifestyle I ended up with and with being a poet. So this poem is about that sort of mourning one conception of a poet and trying to embrace another. Confessions of a Failed Beatnik. I'll admit that I shaved my scruff, patched my jeans, and then bought slacks, and what's more, a jacket, a tie, and even shoes, matching, polished, and thus disguised, I followed the trail of perfume that led like a floral fluting pied piper out of the village, out of Manhattan even, all the way to suburban Kentucky where I lost myself, man, where I forgot the words to every song I'd ever sung to myself, let my dreams come unstitched, Jack, Quit drinking myself into nowhere zen stupors in most afternoons, though not hungover. I'm so headachy from meetings and emails that I drive right past the brandy-colored light of just before sunset without pulling over to take it in. Then later, rather than watching moonlight illuminate the wind combing through unmown bluegrass, I'm wiping kid puke there, there. I'm shining a flashlight on the no monsters under their bunk bed. I saw the best minds of my generation toss aside their necessary suffering, lose the art of losing, trade it all in for golf clubs. I saw them trade the too beautiful intensity of feeling, feeling, feeling for the calm comfort of the girl next door's bare arms. And I'll admit I sold out too, and of late, no one has thought to compare me to a Roman candle exploding spider-like while everyone goes, ah, no, far from it. In fact, I mean, dig this, one fourth of July afternoon, not night. I seared my foot on a sparkler, oh, didn't I? The moral being, don't wear sandals around any kind of lit fireworks, but my kids were in an excited hurry, so I did just that. And when I showed them how to twirl the fiery wire, a hot cherry landed right underneath a strap, and by the time I desandaled, my skin was oozing fluids. But oh, listen, cats, my left hand didn't know what my right hand was handing it when it offered a handshake that turned out to be really a handcuff. So yes, I'll admit I put all my pop pipes and tricyclics in a box, a mildewed cardboard box I left in front of my mortgage track house with free written on the side in a pungent, licorice-smelling, permanent ink smear. And I'll be the first to admit that I'm not free, that I'll change two diapers in the time it takes you to read this, that no, 
odor-proof pail will keep that stench from clinging to my memory like tobacco to close at a dingy tavern, daddy-o. And I have to admit that I rarely visit dingy taverns because my wife hates that smell and she makes me shower afterwards. So standing here clean-shaven and cologne and certifiably a carpooler and Little League coach, I hereby admit, angels, that I disgust myself. Not like Robert Lowell as Peeping Tom in Skunk Hour, but more like a Benedict Arnold of Hip Town turned double-dealing traitor, citizen of Nowheresville. No need to point fingers or a gun to my head, doves. I'll freely admit that most full moons, I don't howl or chase cars because I have to work the next morning. And I'm not the kind of cat who wears women's underwear. I've never leapt off a bridge, put my head in an oven, attended a bullfight, shot my wife in the head while aiming for an apple, carved my skin and called it research, gone to prison except to teach a poetry class, hitched cross country, stepped in front of a car or tank or dune buggy, buggy or run for office just to write about it. I don't even keep a bride on the side or any dark secrets except those of my friends, most of whom are characters in forgotten novels. And because this is a confessional poem, I'll admit that I'm pee your pants scared of my kids. I mean, like they pretend to be ghosts and I pretend to be scared, right? But I really am scared, pretending not to be. Scared they'll grow up to be like me in all the wrong ways. Scared I'll run out of bread and they'll wear secondhand sweaters. Not bohemian chic tatters, but real honest to Buddha hand to mouth sleeping on storm grates poor. Scared they won't grow up. Scared they'll grow up and I'll grow old, quick as a car crash, and my poems will be totaled. Scared they'll turn me into a piano, out of tune, dust on every key. Very nice. Yeah, take a breath and a bow there, Tom, or maybe a sip of water. <laughs> that was a... That was a... <laughs> Confessions of a Failed Beatnik from the, the new Inselected, which is going to come out next spring. Um, there's another question here from Dana St. Marie. He right. says, uh, do you consider or contemplate eternity when you write? Very interesting question, because uh, you know, I've talked to poets who think you know, they write to live forever. Well, that's kind of the goal. Oh, do you think, that kind of eternity, yeah. I, I think that's what he meant. Do you think about that or, uh, or not? Kind of. Uh, I, uh, I hope I write one poem that lasts at least longer than I do, you know, I don't know about eternity. Um, most uh, years, uh, once a year, I, I teach an essay called Poetry and Ambition by Donald Hall. Uh, and it helps me get through all the periods when I'm not winning prizes and things like that, because he says in there, um, something like a the Nobel Prize, that's not that's not a good goal. You should try to be as good as Herbert. And then another draft a version of it, he says, you should try to be as good as Dante. And so like I, I tell myself, yeah, I'm a I'm not writing for prizes right now or for publications. I'm writing to, you know, I'd rather try to be Dante and fail than try to be, um, oh, I don't know, a Ruby Carr and, and sell millions of copies, you know. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's just a self-deception because I'm mad that I'm not selling millions of copies. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, I think anybody can – we can all hope that we're going to write one great poem, you know. I mean, it just takes one, you know. Or <laughs> so uh, – and we and maybe we don't ever know which one it is. Uh but yeah, I absolutely want to write at least one anthology piece that lasts longer than I do. Um, uh, yeah, to me, that's real ambition more than uh, just trying to uh, win uh, the next prize. Although I might rethink that because I just won a big prize that I'm real happy about. <laughs> yeah, so so uh, you know, a hundred or ten million copies or one poem that's anthologized two hundred years from now. You know. Yeah, the, the one that lasts two hundred years for yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that is what life is all about, is having a seat at the table of human experience or something like that, which very few people get to do in the long run. So, um, 
Let's see. Oh, who's doing the new selected? Someone asked really quick, and I don't know the answer to that. They're called CNR Press. They're in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. CNR Press. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, I'll add. There's probably. Is there a link yet? Probably not. It's too far out, huh? Not yet. I'll put a link. Soon though. Uh, yeah. I'll yeah. put a link in the notes um, after this, uh, just to CNR Press, and then they can come back to it or bookmark it or something. Um, let's see. We got a little bit of time left. Maybe. Um, do you want to do two more poems? Maybe to, to close it out. Okay, sure. Um, I got one here called Out of Body Experiences from the New and Selected. It's page 69. If you're there, um, I, I talked about how I do exercises from my own book. And this is the example of an exercise called that I call a uh, braided encyclopedia. So I'm sure you're familiar with braided narratives. Uh, Albert Goldbarth is an example of a poet that writes these. Uh, and David Kirby is another example. They kind of they're juggling different stories at the same time. Uh, David Kirby, you know, likes has this idea of marrying a personal narrative with uh, an impersonal narrative, something something bigger. So, so I have that exercise in the book, the braided narrative, with a David Kirby example and a student example. But I found that when I was reading a lot of these poems, I was more drawn to the fact there were all these quirky facts in the poems and less drawn to the narratives. So I came up with the braided encyclopedia, where you uh, you just come up with a bunch of trivial facts trivia, whatever, uh, strange, quirky facts, and see how many of them you can put together without telling too much of a story, I guess. And let the facts be front-loaded. So this is called out-of-body experiences. I wanted out of my body, so I flew into, my, into the body of a bird, a canary. But then my canary heart beat 1,000 times per minute. Felt like 50 Red Bulls all at once. My heart wasn't used to so much fluttering, so much frantic singing. I wanted out, so I dive-bombed into Giovanni Verrazzano, who discovered the Hudson River before Henry Hudson, who got all the credit. In this new body, I was glad to be a man again, proud of my discovery, but envious of Henry Hudson, whose name would be immortalized by a historical error, the way the French horn was actually invented in Germany. I wished I could be the embodiment of such mistaken immortality. I wanted the credit, not the accomplishment, so I flew into Henry Hudson's body, felt satisfied for a moment, but there was a crew uprising and I was left in a rowboat to die in the very river that would take my name. In that moment, I wished I had a carrier pigeon so I could send my apologies to my noble rival, Giovanni Verrazzano. I wanted to tell him I knew I was the true also-ran, like Samuel Langley, second to fly after the Wright brothers, or Elisha Gray, who tried to patent the telephone on February 14, 1876, hours after Alexander Graham Bell left the patent office, whistling like a bird, like a ringing phone. Wishing I could leave my body without dying first, I swam into the body of a female blue whale. My heart weighed 1,500 pounds. My heavy heart was an anchor capable of plunging me into fathomless depths, and I had a sudden urge to nestle up against a bull whale and open myself to his massive phallus, which isn't much odder than Rene Descartes' fetish for cross-eyed girls or Charles, Baudelaire's, Charles Baudelaire's love for squint-eyed Sarah, the prostitute who gave him syphilis. I wish I could be a man again, a smart and accomplished man, but not Descartes or Baudelaire. I wished I could be William Shakespeare. And hallelujah, I flew into William Shakespeare, William Shakespeare of the Kalamazoo Shakespeare's, who invented a revolutionary new fishing reel. An accomplished man whose name would never be forgotten, I knew I could die satisfied, and I wished my heart would become a bird and fly singing out of my mouth. Oh, that's great. A braided encyclopedia. I've never heard of that before. Um, well, I think I invented it. You know, uh, I've heard other people use the term braided narrative, but uh, I think that might be mine. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was a cool one. Um, 
Let me see. Do you want to do you want to close out with one last poem? Whatever you want to finish on. Absolutely. It uh, it'll be from you know the latest issue of uh, of Rattle. Okay. Cool. Um, this is called The Fact That There's a Snake Tunneling Through My Grass Doesn't Make the Parting of the Blades Any Less Beautiful. But before you read it, let me ask you, because I think I, I um, didn't, you post a lot of poems on your Facebook page, I've noticed. And it seems like they're written like very spontaneously. Um, I don't know if that's the case or not, but it kind of feels like, like you, I think, I don't know if it was this poem, but I saw um, you post other poems maybe where you said like. I post them as notes on Facebook yeah. and it's a way of workshopping for me. I mean, uh. I can tell if something, you know, if, if nobody says anything, that's a, that says a lot. And, you know, <laughs> if people single out lines, that says something too. And I, I revive, I post revisions there too. Mm -hmm. I don't remember if I did that with this one. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's just an interesting thing to do, and which I, I wish more people would do. Because I really hate the, um, the way people let literary journals keep their poems hostage from just sharing them on social media. Um, but, yeah. But anyway. Good. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't come in any problems with it you know i always worry that somebody's gonna say well it's already published but i mean yeah these are early drafts they don't even have the, the right title yet you know things like that yeah exactly i just wonder i wonder just because people have that anxiety about doing it and i think they should so um so you've never had any problem with it no i have not and maybe it's i had somebody comment that maybe it was because i do them as notes instead of just a regular facebook timeline comments mm -hmm. i don't know yeah yeah anyway should i just read yeah, it go ahead uh, the fact that there's a snake tunneling through my grass doesn't make the parting of the blades any less beautiful. Many things are strange. For example, people yawn when other people yawn, but usually blush or look away when other people cry. All the heavy metal potheads from high school became bankers or lawyers, or in some cases, well-heeled preachers. Meanwhile, David Lee Roth, formerly of Van Halen, could show up at your door to set up your dish TV satellite and you wouldn't even recognize him, now would you? Or you'd recognize him, but you'd yawn and he'd yawn to hide the fact that he's crying inside. Might as well jump, like a fish that shocks the air and is shocked by it, before diving home to its pond stained by sunrise as sunlight skims the surface. Me, I've seen barbed wire rusting in brittle morning light. I felt a horse's damp lips graze my human hand and heard it snort like wind flapping a flag. Honest, I've heard a stadium exhale as a ball landed in a glove, and I've spent the car ride home trying to find a way to describe that sound. I've heard people laugh when other people laugh, but it would be a lie to say, I've never heard anyone laugh as someone else cried. I need you to know the sky is tilting from the heaviness of all these southbound birds, but will right itself before you have a chance to fact check me on this. Very excellent, Tom. I think you, you uh, shortened it from the one we published. Right. I was wondering if you noticed that. <laughs> I revise poems after they get published. Uh, remember I published a poem in your... Um, the, the poet's what's it called? Poet's the, Respond, the yeah. Response mm -hmm. yeah. News. And now it's in the selected. You'll see it. It's got a whole different title. Mm -hmm. uh, not in the selected. In the unpublished manuscript I'm working on. Different title, different stanza breaks. I just do that. Uh, usually by the, poem, by the time my poems appear in journals, I really don't like them anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, it's, I don't know if um, I'm remembering this right, but I think I did. I think I saw, um, I think you submitted this poem to Poets Respond. And I don't remember what it was about, though. Do you remember what it was about? And then I think we said, well, this is, I love this, but it could go any, it's sort of timeless. So let's just put it in the regular issue. Do you remember that? Or am I just imagining things? I don't think, yeah, I think that's misremembering. I'm pretty sure... 
I've only tried Poetry's Respond a couple times when it was really, truly uh, about the news. Gotcha. Okay. Um, well, anyway, yeah, Tom C. Hunley, thanks so much for being a guest. I love all your poems. love talking to you today. I think it was very helpful for a lot of people. And, um, yeah, I just appreciate you and, and uh, looking forward to working together on your, your chapbook for December. And maybe we'll have you on again to read from that. And um, Tim, this, and this interview is going to be the highlight of my week. But then I got your news about the chapbook. <laughs> so that was the highlight of my week. So thanks for two highlights. I mean, massive highlights. Oh, Great week. Yeah, yeah, my pleasure. I'm really looking forward to it. Everyone's going to love that book. That was a, it was a book that, that made us all just very emotional. And um, uh, yeah, the poems are very important to me because they're, they're my kids. I mean, they're me trying to explain my kids, you know, and get them right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe we'll, I, well, maybe we'll have you on again in the winter after that book comes out. All right. Tim. Okay, cool. Thanks a lot, Tom. Yeah. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye. Yeah. That was Tom C. Hunley and, um, his two newest books. Let me show you again. Well, here lies is out right now. Um, and this is from, um, Oh, yeah, Stephen F. Austin State University Press. And then his new and selected will be out next year, uh, next March, from um, CNR Press. And once again, I'll put the link to CNR Press in the show notes so you can, like, bookmark it or something for when um, when that comes up. Now let's move on to the open mic. And um, the open mic prompt for this week – actually, before we do that, let, let me um, get rid of Tom. Bye, Tom. Um, the open mic uh, numbers. Uh, first of all, if you'd like to participate in the open mic, it's prompt based. So if you wrote a poem about last week's prompt, you can email it if you haven't yet to open mic, all one word, like it's on the screen there at rattle.com. Then call in 818 uh, 850-7727. Let it ring a couple times and I will call you back when the time is right. Or preferred, because when we can see you too, use Skype and send a chat message to rattle poetry, all one word. Uh, over Skype and just say, hey, I'd like to read a poem. I will call you back again when the time is right. Now, the prompt uh, for this week, these are Megan's prompts. Megan comes up with a new prompt for us every week, and then we, me and her both try to write a poem, and then you can write a poem too. Um, the prompt for this week is uh, write a poem in the style of teaching someone how to do something. So that was this week's prompt. Write a poem in the style of teaching someone how to do something. We have a whole bunch of people who sent poems today. So I assume they're the people who are calling in and stuff right now, which is awesome. We'll get to you in just a second. Um, now my poem I wrote, this was a 10-minute poem that I wrote 10 minutes before the show started. When I called Tom up for the test, I was doing the line breaks here. Um, I, I figured I would... Um, the kids are always asking me stuff. And I figured they'd ask me something. And sure enough, I think yesterday or two days ago... They asked me how to whistle loud, and it's something that I could can't. I never learned how to do, and I thought it would be fun to try to learn how to do it, and um, then I could tell them how to do it. Um, and this is the poem I came up with. This is how to whistle loud. Shove the rough balloons of your fingers into the gaping arc of your mouth. Twist them like a clown to the writhing shapes of every animal and insect on earth. Make one finger the tree bark and the other the box elder beetle. Make the honey in the honeycomb, all the dancing directions, every badger in the moonlight. Make every living thing, then gather the wind. Pull taut the rope of your lips, tie them to the masts of your teeth until they have nothing, until all they have left to do is sing. I think I made a little edit at the end there. Tie them to the masts of your teeth until all they have left to do is sing. That was my poem. And now Megan's poem, 
um, is how to be a good neighbor. And there's a little asterisk, 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 asterisk. I have trouble saying that word after the word good. So here's Megan's poem, how to be a good neighbor. When they move in, bring a pie over wrapped in a tea towel. Resist the urge to leave it on the porch, ring the bell and run. Smile. If they don't have kids, say, sorry about the noise. If they do have kids, say, so nice to have another family around. They won't return the pie pan. Don't ask for it back. If you're about to have a marital argument, close the windows. If you're about to play John Denver at full volume, close the windows. Just keep the windows closed all the time, unless you're cooking. Then open them and hope they're impressed by the aromas, but not so impressed that they invite you to, to their next potluck. If their frisbee sails over your fence, throw it back. If their dog shits in your yard, don't throw it back. Not the first time, at least. Join the search party for a lost cat. Don't join the neighborhood watch because the people in it say things like foreign man walking down the street, just be aware. When they move out, be out of town as they pack the truck but show up right before they drive away and say, we'll miss you, even though you're only half sure you know their first names. They lived here 10 years. You hope they liked the pie. Damn it, you really wanted that pie pan back. And then the asterisk is decent. How to be a decent neighbor. That was Megan's poem. Um, now let's turn to your poems and see who we have to share. Uh, the first person on the call, this is a 270 number. Let's call it up and see who that is. The phone is ringing. Also, I'm, I'm 30 seconds in the head, so turn off your uh, stream. Hello? Hello, this is Tim from Rattle. Can you hear me, and would you like to share a poem from the prompt? Uh, yes, I can hear you. Awesome. Uh, who am I talking to? This is Cameron Gray. Cameron? I emailed you. Okay, let me try to find it. How do you spell how do you spell your name? Sorry for the With delay. a K. That's probably K A M E R O N and it's Gray G R E Y. Ah, here we go. Okay. Yeah, it just didn't say the name on the on the email address. Okay, let me um let me put this up. So shiny buttons was your uh, how to is there anything you want to say about it before you read it? Um I'd, I I wanna say I guess um it touches a little bit about being a lady working in a male-dominated field. I've done trade work for a long time, and you get a lot of funny reactions from men. And once I felt confident in my trade, I started to mess with them back a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Well, let's hear shiny buttons. Okay. Shiny buttons. New leather has a distinct smell, and when you wear new leather, everyone can tell you are green. Shiny buttons, not a scratch in sight. A perfect target for know-it-alls who are mean. Everyone gets a babysitter. I just hope mine is cool. I'm ready to get dirty, but terrible at school. There must be some mistake. What's she doing here? What illness am I about to fake? Anxiety starts to pool. Behind that red curtain, side by side, all day? What on earth could she teach me? This is work, not play. Hoods are down, nothing to see, a tiny light and a puddle. We lift our lids to what any QC would call a perfect display. Welding is like sex. She flashes her pirate smile. Some positions are difficult, some angles are bad, 
and it's important to know when preheat is necessary. She gives me a wink, and I begin to think. I want to learn everything from this girl. <laughs> That's awesome. Thanks so much for sharing that. Uh, that was Shiny Buttons by um, uh, Cameron Gray. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. That was a wonderful poem. I really appreciate it. Um, let's see. Who is next? Um, let's go with uh, Richard Westheimer. Hey, Richard, how are you doing today? Hey, Tim. Boy, that, that 30 second delay gets me every time. Yeah, it's it's little, <laughs> things happening at once. It is very confusing. Yeah, yeah. I should, I should remember to warn people because you're not, you're a veteran of uh, calling in, but most people, you know, a lot of people haven't yet. And, um, yeah, so I should warn people every time I call, like, you think I'm talking to someone else and then bam, I'm calling you because there's a big delay as the, as the stuff flies around the internet. And, yeah. um, and also I should remind everybody which you know to do, but turn off your, um, YouTube stream or wherever you're watching it so that, um, you don't get confused by the, the delay too. It's like calling into a radio show or something. Um, anyway, so what did you have for us today? We have, um, let's see how to pick the perfect blueberry. Yeah. Is it, sort of, uh, is it, not, your prompt, um, so difficult because it's so hard not to be didactic and sort of like <laughs> trying to teach that, uh, Anyway, that's I was out picking blueberries and doing a bad job of it, as you'll see. <laughs> so that's something you got to do this week. Uh yeah, blueberries are the height of the season here uh, in Southern. Very Ohio. nice, very so, nice. Okay, yeah. so go ahead whenever you're ready. Yeah. Okay. How to pick the blue the perfect blueberry? And the epigraph from Wendell Berry's Sabbath is: In time, a man disappears from his lifelong fields, from the streams he has walked beside. Find a patch of land, call it home, plant a garden, dig in leaves, shovel manure from a neighbor's barn, repeat, meet a beautiful woman, buy her a post hole digger. Together, build a fence, make love, make babies, raise babies who have babies, plant blueberry bushes, neglect them, replant, do better by each other, add more manure, protect the budding bushes from frost, save the ripening berries from robins. Robins do not want to share with you. Do not feel badly for them. Feel badly for the snakes caught in the bird netting. Repeat, admire the beautiful woman. For 40 years, admire her again and again. Smile when she follows you into the blueberry patch. After you've picked all you can find, and she comes behind you, fills her bowl, brimming. Ask her how she does it. She replies, the blueberries find me. Very nice. Thanks so much. And that was How to Pick the Perfect Blueberry by Richard Westheimer. Um, yeah, thanks so much for sharing that, Richard. Always great to see you, and uh, excellent poems, as always. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Appreciate yeah, it. Have a good rest of your night. Will do. Okay, let's see. Let's go to the 774 number. Whoever this is called a few times. Hey, this is Tim with Rattle. Did you want to share a poem? Uh, yes, I did. Hey, and who am I talking to? Sally Dunn. Hey, Sally. How are you doing? Okay. Is this, is this Sally um, Bluemist Dunn or a different Sally Dunn? Excuse me, Sally who, Dunn? Bluemist Dunn? Uh, we we published no. it. No. No. Okay. So there's a Sally 
just done. Okay, and your poem is um, uh, The Heart of Matter Speaks to the Human Heart? Yes. Okay, great. And where are you calling from, Sally? Cape Cod. Ah, cool. And how are things there? Is it? Yeah, I think you have a heat wave there and, and maybe rain? Uh, no, we're actually in a drought. Um, keep missing the rain by uh, a few miles, but uh, yeah, it's hot and muggy. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, well, go ahead whenever you're ready. The heart of the matter speaks to the human heart. Okay. Um, the heart of matter speaks to the human heart. It's easy to speak to the heart of trees. Press your bare hand to the bark, your bare feet to the soil above its roots. Let out your breath, then breathe in easy and slow, and out again. And there is the tree, its heart and your heart talking. Rocks must be approached a certain way. Sitting on them never works, nor does hugging them or throwing them. Press your forehead to a rock, and you are speaking one heart to another. Stars are not easily spoken with, but you can meld your being with theirs, and this must surely be a conversation. Sit outside on a quiet night, Step out of your body, fling yourself up to the stars, embrace their fire, and you will find your human heart and the heart of stars together in a conflagration of communion. Very nice. Thanks so much, Sally. That was wonderful. Um, I'm so glad you could call in, and, and it's nice having a few uh, first-timers tonight. Yeah. <laughs> Thank yeah, hope, you. Yeah, I hope you keep doing it and, and call in next week, too. Okay. Okay. Good night. Good night. Yeah, so think about those stars. Everybody knows the uh the comet that's visible with the naked eye right now. I'm gonna I'm looking forward to going for a walk and trying to see it tonight. I'm gonna go up on a ridge. Um let's see. Who is next in line? Let's do Michelle Parks. So we are calling Michelle. I'll pull her poem up. Hey Michelle, how are you doing tonight? I'm good. How are you? I am good. Let me find you. Hang on. There you go. Um, so, hey. so what was your poem tonight? Um, well, I wrote a poem called Hypnosis of Self-Ownership. Uh-huh. Uh, just a couple of points. I don't know if you have the revised one. I got all neurotic today about words. Uh -huh. um, so I wanted to make just a couple of points. Uh, if you're not already, join Rattles Anything Goes, Rattles Poets Respond, and Rattles Writers Workshop on Facebook, uh, Go Team Tim. It's a great place for peer reviews and to help us, you know, further be better at, at the words we write and getting our point across. Uh, for the point credit to Dead Poets Society and Walt Whitman, and the definition of bitch kitty is thing of extreme difficulty, Point of pain with no release, bad-tempered woman, or diva cat. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, thanks for the shout-out, first of all, for those groups. It is, it is good to join those groups. There's like thousands of people in each one, so um, you get a lot of feedback, hopefully. I, I have, I've been doing a bad job monitoring them, but hopefully people are active and commenting on each other's uh, poems. And I do have the final version, so we're good. The, the email, it said final, so I assume that was the final. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so it's ready to go whenever you are. Awesome. Hypnosis of self-ownership. Be prepared. Have you gathered your accoutrements, clothing, 
optional, water, mandatory, comfortable places, silent, eh, hard to find, but possible if you drive 45 minutes out of the city, Google coyote to person ratio first, way back to where you weren't before, got it, good. So you lay where you land, you lay as the world surrounds you, if ants at your toes focus on fingers, if mosquitoes gnaw your forehead, focus on the inner gnaw, what's that dried up, uncherished, what's that that's dying right now, there's the bitch kitty, atrophy of soul, knotted, distorted, you played God and victim in old worlds, both are punished, let that shit go. Look at the trees or rock or space that holds you. Push light from feet to head. Pull negative forward like a car wash drive through with unicorn poop layering on windows. Wait, go back. There's another hard spot. Pull the light forward again and through. Pull the light forward till no hardness remains. You may want to add wax. That's optional. Parental flesh is more than cleansed with an engine revving on energy of earth. Let the negative push out and beyond you. Open your mouth and yawp. Let it fly away. Repeat. Yawp. There should be nothing left of before. Only the ongoing of choosing now. Only ongoing. Your spotless soul. Again and again. Like never before. Awesome. Thanks so much for sharing that. This is Michelle Parks uh, reading her poem for the week, uh, Hypnosis of Self-Ownership. Very interesting. I'm going to have to reread that again or watch it again um, after, the, after the episode. Thanks so much for sharing that, Michelle. Always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. I appreciate it so much. Okay, have a good night. You too. Okay. Um, let me see. I think, let's see. We'll try to get through. We'll try to do the kind of a lightning round. I'll try not to do much chit-chat. But Angela Gartner's coming up. So I do have to get the kids to bed. We got technically we have four minutes. Um, Angela, hello. Let me pull you in for everybody to see. Hello, how are you doing tonight? Good. How are you doing? No rats in the garage. Excellent. So excellent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are. Um, we have our own. We have an ant infestation now. We are battling. You know, they find the dog food. They find the, the syrup that's spilled a little out of the honey jar or whatever. Oh, we're driving. We're going crazy with that. Um, anyway, let me see. Um, what your poem was tonight. Was it Wash the Dog? Wash the Dog, yeah. Cool. Very simple. No explanation needed. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. Well, I'll just dive right in. We will try to make this like a lightning round so we get to the last two people, too. Okay. Whenever. He... Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Chase him around the house, the furry, short legged pup. Pick him up, then give a quick hug. Take off his nylon collar of tags. Run after him once more. Another squeeze before you take him to the bathroom door. Set him gently in the tub. If you forgot the old towels, start all over again. Spray him with lukewarm water. Calmly pat him down. Reassure him there's no need to be high strung. Lather the oatmeal soap in his fur. He doesn't cause a stir. Then shake, shake, shake. His body goes. Shampoo is all over you. You laugh as bubbles burst on your nose. You rinse him until no more suds are in the drain. He quakes anew. Time to dry. 
gently rubbed the droplets off, or off his face, let him run around, pressing his body against anything he can find. Now, change out of your wet clothes. Awesome. Thanks, Angela. That was Wash the Dog. Um, and I've actually never given a dog a bath. We have, we have a dog for a year now. And um, we take him a couple times to the groomer one, you know, when he's shedding, but we've never done. I'm scared. He's huge. He's like 95 pounds. And um, I don't know if I love it or hate it. So we haven't tried it yet. Um, anyway. Well, I, so, <laughs> so like, he, 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 like, it goes good in the tub. But, I mean, we've had, I've had Alaskan Malamutes that are just monstrous. <laughs> that there's no way we could, you know, when we put them in, it just all over the fur yeah people. yeah we're thinking about getting a, the kitty pool out and then just like hosing him and seeing how how he likes that but um but anyway thanks for so much for sharing that Angela. and oh, i should say you. uh, you're doing the critique of the week on friday too so um everybody tune in and uh looking forward to that um i'll see you then angela okay see you then have yep, a great day bye okay um yeah let's try to get these last couple people really quick uh, carla schwartz calling her up Hey, Carla, can you Hi. hear me? Hello, how are you doing tonight? Hi, yes, I can hear you now, and and the thing is off. <laughs> okay, <laughs> very good. So how are you doing tonight, Carla? I'm doing very well, thank you. Really well, and uh, still healthy. Excellent, and, that's great uh, to hear. And um, it was a great night, and I'm happy to just go right into it as you need to. Yeah, go ahead. And, it's the uh, art of opening, right? Yeah, The Art of Opening. Okay. Um, so this poem was inspired by something I have discovered recently. And I think everybody should know. Okay. <laughs> when, the, when the nib of a peach holds fast to the seed, when the tongue on the cardboard glued under the lid of a jar is too short to grab, even with fingernails, when the plastic wrapping surrounding a jar or bottle top or cork yields no purchase, when your cinnamon, cinnamon bark is thick enough to get caught in the blades of your grinder, it's time to bring out your kitchen pliers. <laughs> Very nice. Thanks for sharing that. That was Carla Schwartz. And you can find Carla, of course, at uh, CB99 videos on YouTube. Um, yeah, thanks for calling in and sharing that, Carla. Thank you so much, Tim. Take yeah, care. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay. Um, let's see. We got that one, that one, that one. I think there's one that we didn't talk to. And maybe there's, maybe that was it. Um, let me see. Carla, Michelle. Hang on. I'm very sorry for the... just want to make sure I got to everybody. I'm not missing anybody. It's back to Sunday. I really need to like, type and actually add contacts into this contact list. That would be helpful. Um, so Vicky uh, Miko, I wonder, um, I think Vicky can't call in. See, I don't know if I should just read it um, for Vicky. And then um, we have some other poems too. Um, but I think that probably should be it since I think that's everybody on my call list. Um, yeah, so thanks, everybody, for uh, joining us tonight. It was an ex another excellent night. I just love Tom C. Ooh, wait, someone's called. There is Vicky Miko. I thought she might. Let's do Vicky Miko. And we'll see if it works. Hey, Vicky, are you there? Can you hear me? Yes. Hello. Yeah, good to see you. Um, I'm glad last time we tried it, it wasn't working, so I'm glad that it's working now. 
Yeah, it's uh, on and off here at our complex. Yeah. Um, okay, so you want to share so, what you wrote? That was an excellent interview with Tom. I, I loved all the poems. Yeah, he's yes. good. I like Tom a lot. Um, it's, it, so teaching the t teaching tarot is the poem you wanted? You had? Yes. Okay, cool. Um, let me... Uh... Oh, here it is. Okay, so you have it as a Word document. Okay, so whenever you're ready, if you, is there anything you want to say about it before you start? Uh, no, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm a closet tarot reader. That is so cool. Yeah, I love um, tarot. Yeah, we had a great discussion about it with uh, Jennifer John um, in Rattle number 53. She was a tarot reader. Um, oh, you did? Yeah, yeah, it was really oh, cool. And she has that. a book, her first book, I think, her first full-length book is about the tarot deck somehow and she was a tarot reader professionally at like a call center so people would call and she would read them over the phone and it was interesting really interesting oh. i never met anybody who did that so it was interesting and her name is, is jennifer um jennifer i think i think you say jean but it's jean like j-e-a-n oh okay thank you yeah and it's rattle 53 where you talked about it i'm not sure if that interview's online right now or not but um but it's that issue okay great thank you yeah, it's fascinating stuff, but um, I, I love everything that I don't know anything about, and that's one of, the, one of them. So, Okay, so whenever you're ready, go ahead. Okay, teaching tarot. When the student is ready, the teacher will appear, a Zen proverb. Tarot, telling yourself to yourself. Quiet, please. This is your elective study of the tarot, for you only, to steady your wonder to tell all your secrets, to stir up your wanderer. Tarot tallies the epitome of you. Tarot is the beholder of your chronicle, your secret suitcase filled with mood, muse, and Mobius warnings waiting to be picked up, opened, and transcribed into your personal code. Tarot is your private flavor, your light in the closet, the raw abundance of your internal and external locusts saying, I did it my way. Ready yourself. Sunspots, move your chair from the front porch to the back. Go wherever your private place calls you, a secluded window seat, a flying rug, a flat stone high above the riffle. You're sitting comfy there. Now think of a question you want to an answer to. Close your eyes, raise your arms, breathe yourself into a hum, a slow resonating tone. Give the cards a shuffle, cut them, stack them, spread them face down in a fan. Before you begin your picking, decide on a spread pattern, whichever you choose, rows, a cross, a column, a circle, a half moon, summon your intuition, expect an impression. Think about your question while you pick 10 cards. Place each card on top of the other face down in your hand. Each card reveals the inner and outer influences relative to your question in a fixed sequence of the 10 positions below. Now you are ready. Pick card one, what's happening. Pick card two, what's confusing. Pick card three, what's in the forefront. Pick card four, what's underneath? Pick card five, what's leaving? Pick card six, what's coming? Pick card seven, what's your attitude? Pick card eight, how do, you, how do others think? What do others think? Pick card nine, what are your hopes and fears? 
pick card 10. What is the collective result of this reading? You now have 10 cards face down in your hand. The top card should be card number 10. It's time to face up each card one by one to call your clarion, to taste the flavor of your code. Your secret suitcase is laid wide open, its contents transfixed in a 10 card spread. Breathe in and into the images, sink into your source book and study every meaning. Steady your wonder, tell all your secrets, stir up your wanderer, open your mirrored window, begin to see yourself. To tarot read for yourself, you must be open to shining a sunbeam on your shadow self. Unhide your intuition and let it rise. Wrap on your sanguine self. Step into your Akasic River. You are the sole owner of what you already know. A fireball, yourself, a synchronicity. Very nice. Uh, that's kind of a, a haven. It's a, it's a yeah, haven. Yeah, I love the introduction. I love that you are the sole owner of what you already know. That's a great way to end it. And then, that, and then the uh, haiku, too. Uh, let me ask you, why you, got, why do you think um, tarot works? Like, what is it that it's, like, tapping into? Because I'm just so fascinated by the sort of collective unconscious or, or the, the field or whatever it, whatever it is that makes us sort of have some kind of extrasensory connection. Do you have any idea? Well, I think, well, I think it's, it's not so much woo-woo stuff or esoteric or fortune-telling stuff. I think it's more, uh, if you know the meaning, if you read the meaning of each card, uh, which is a little bit of study to do. <laughs> um, and then you ask a question. It's a very personal thing, too. You ask a question, and then you pick the cards, and then you study that meaning, and then you think, oh, that makes sense. Hmm. Um, I, I, <laughs> I read for myself all the time. Uh, I, nobody really knows that I read tarot, except now everybody knows <laughs> yeah. I guess. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, that is, that is really cool. Thanks so much for sharing. I, I love getting that insight. Uh, thank you. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, yeah. everybody. Have a good Have night. Have a good night. That was Vicky Miko uh, reading her poem. That's going to be uh, that was teaching tarot. And then, and then the proverb at the beginning was, "When the student is ready, the teacher will appear." I love that too. Uh, thanks, Vicky. Um, so that is the show for tonight. Um, there are a few more people who sent poems but didn't get on the call list. So um, I'm glad you wrote. The, the real point of these uh, prompts is to let. Um, give everybody some kind of thing to write on. And I think that really helps because I think the more poems that are created in this world, the better the world is. And uh, that's one of the things we're trying to do here. So next week's prompt is um, uh, write a poem about a phobia you have. That's next week's prompt. Write a poem about a phobia you have. And if you go, if you just look up phobias, you can, um, there's huge lists of different phobias. We did publish, um, Patrick Ryan Frank has a bunch of poems about phobias and rattle. Um, one of them I remember was um, thesal- thalassophobia, I think is the word, which is maybe fear of uh, fear of the deep ocean, if I, if I remember that right. Um, anyway, so write a poem about a phobia you have and, and let us all know your deepest fears. That is your your uh, your assignment for next week. Um, now, once again, let me just remind you of some stuff. We do have crit- the Critique of the Week, which this uh, Friday... Uh, 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. 
uh, Pacific Time, Angela Gartner is going to be the critiqued poet this week. Then we have um, uh, the Rattle Poetry Prize. Deadline is um, tomorrow night at midnight, my time, July 15th. So if you haven't entered yet, the entry fee is a one-year subscription to Rattle Magazine, which everybody wants anyway. It's a steal at 25 bucks, but uh, you might as well... Um, enter to uh, win a $15,000 prize for a single poem while you subscribe. So that is um, sort of our subscription drive that we do every year. It expands our uh, subscriber base by like 40%, maybe something like that, which is really nice because our our whole mission here at Rattle is to um, get more people reading and writing poetry regularly. And this is one of the things that helps on both both ends of that goal. So uh, that's the Rattle Poetry Prize. The deadline is tomorrow. Submit up to four poems for 25 bucks and get uh, four issues and four chapbooks, including uh, Tom C. Hunley's, who was uh, this week's guest. So you'll get, oops, you'll get a Tom C. Hunley's chapbook, um, Adjusting to the Lights, which is going to come out in December, too, if you enter the Rattle Poetry Prize. So please do that. Now, next week's guest is going to be uh, David Rumpvet. Uh, he was the poet laureate of, I'm forgetting which state. Was it Montana or Wyoming? I can't remember. But he was the poet laureate of one of those two states. And um, his newest book is Dilemmas of the Angels. But he also translates a whole bunch of uh, Bosque poetry. He has a book of uh, Bosque poetry that's coming out. He's also a musician. I'm not sure if we'll get him to play something, but I hope so. And um, just a wonderful guy. And living sort of the, the dream, maybe. Just such a creative person. And we're going to meet him next Tuesday at uh, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, July 21st. So I hope to see you then. In the meantime, have a great rest of your week. Good night.